community revved up about pool closure. This week, City Council made a lot of noise about vehicle noise. And the Friends of Scona Rec made a lot of noise about the pool closure. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 188. And Mac, there is a new member joining Speaking Municipally. Maybe we might even be able to hear her in the background. But you and Sharon welcomed Elizabeth to the family, didn't you? Yes, uh, second child, Elizabeth, born on August 10th. So uh, right as we were getting ready to return to the podcast, uh, seven pounds, one ounce and doing really, really well. And if you hear her in the background, it's because she's eager to get into the podcasting world, I'm sure. Yeah, she doesn't quite have the NPR voice down pat. <laughs> it's a little bit too high pitch, but she'll get there. She'll get there. Yep. On to the rapid fire segment. Global Edmonton has named Scott Roberts as the new anchor of the six o'clock news hour said his future co-host, Carol Ann Devaney, quote, I'm excited to work with Scott as he looks well showered, so the anchor desk should be a little less stinky. More than 3,000 runners and walkers ran on Jasper Avenue, then down 102nd Avenue away from downtown in the Edmonton Marathon last weekend, an event the Edmonton police are saying proves that without increasing their funding, Edmontonians will continue to literally run away from downtown. Roadwork has begun on Gateway Boulevard between University Ave and 80th Avenue. The ambitious project will see the city replace like for like and return the four-lane roadway to a four-lane roadway without installing missing sidewalks nor addressing the lampposts installed in the middle of the one existing sidewalk. While reducing the number of lanes on the roadway, which dead ends a mere six blocks past the project zone was a non-starter, the project team did acknowledge that due to the declared climate emergency, mitigation factors would be put in place. Operators of the dump trucks moving hundreds of tons of asphalt would idle their trucks only if it was cold when they're drinking their Timmies. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online anytime, on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and to explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. As we're recording this episode, Wednesday afternoon, we have to shift the schedules a little bit because, like we said, you've got a new one taking up space in your house and taking up time in your sleep schedule. Well, you know, I'm awake in the middle of the night, Troy, but I'm guessing you're not. So, yeah. Thanks for being flexible. Unfortunately, I am not a nocturnal podcaster. <laughs> but the city of Edmonton just sent out a press release about something that we've talked about in the past on this podcast. And it was an update on the public art intended for the Walterdale Bridge. So we talked about this in episode 132, actually. We did a little investigation into what happened to the public art for the Walterdale Bridge, the $155 million new bridge. And we found that there were supposed to be two pieces on both the north and south end and that they were you know, paid for through the Percent for Art program and that it was getting close to being installed. And then it sort of disappeared. And we found out that these two pieces called the Buffalo and the Buffalo Fur Trader, they're two bronze pieces, were basically just sitting in a storage lot. And today, the city's update says that those two bronze sculptures, 13-foot bronze sculptures, will not be installed. In the press release, 
it neither talks about specifically what will happen to these pieces, just that they've directed the Edmonton Arts Council to begin the process of removing the work from the Edmonton Public Art Collection. And there's no real answer of, well, are we going to commission a different piece of public art for the bridge? This bridge, of course, was completed back in 2016. So we have sat artless for coming up on seven years now. And we're just now learning about this. Hopefully we get some more public art on the bridge. But, you know, reading this release, Mac, I don't feel like I'm optimistic about that. No, but if we do find anything out, we'll bring it to you in a future episode, no doubt. This episode, though, we've got to talk about Skona Pool. If you recall when we were introducing you to Councillor Michael Jans, he said in his introduction when we asked about this that this was going to be the budget year where city administration wouldn't try to close Skona and Oliver Pool. He believed that, you know, administration had learned from several councils worth of direction that these pools are important to the respective communities. And every time a closure is attempted... The community shows up in droves and council decides not to close this pool. Well, as we're recording this, 17 speakers are in executive committee telling council, please do not close Skona Pool, as administration has once again proposed. Michael Jans also, you'll recall, was the councillor who said he would be in the background <laughs> supporting his <laughs> colleagues. Uh, and he's certainly made lots of headlines in his first uh, nine months or ten months or whatever. This is back at executive committee, as you say, administration is once again trying to close Skona Pool. It says that it has spent $1.15 million in maintenance and repairs on Skona Pool since 2015. And the crux of its argument here is that to extend the facility's life by another five to 10 years, it's going to cost more than $6 million. So that's a significant jump, one just over a million dollars over the last seven years to six million over the next five to ten. I'm not sure exactly what they project is going to go wrong, but it sounds bad. And as a result, administration recommends the permanent cessation of all operations and closure of the facility. And it did say this could be done as part of the Rolly Miles Recreation Center project, but that isn't imminent. Yeah, color me shocked that city administration is proposing that they do what they've been trying to do for the past decade. The Rolly Miles Rec Center project, that's coming up on the same plot of land that the Skona Pool is currently on. So the natural inclination with this is to say, well, Rolly Miles is coming. We can just close the pool. Yeah. Like you said, this is far from a done deal. Rolly Miles has had initial design funded and is expected to be completed in 2024. However, the actual detailed design and construction of the facility, that hasn't even been funded yet. It could not start before 2024 because obviously the preliminary design won't be done yet. So we're talking in the realm of there's no way Rolly Miles could be constructing until at least three years from now. And it would seem to me, Troy, that preliminary design doesn't happen physically in space. So maybe they could just keep the pool open until that's done. And that's certainly the ask that's coming from the community. No one is arguing that we should keep this facility open with a competing rec center north on the lot. Right. The community is simply asking, look, we've fought hard for this Rolly Miles rec center. Let's keep this important community pool open for the additional time it will take for Rolly Miles to get constructed, which optimistically will be, you know, within half a decade. Or at least let's make sure that it's funded first, right? Because right now, administration saying we'll close this because we're going to build this rec center, 
but it's not guaranteed. Look no further than Lewis Farms, which did, in the end, get funded, but it had a long, circuitous, and delayed path to get there. Right. So that's the context by which we're talking about the decision. That colors administration's report that says keeping the facility open for another five to 10 years is pegged at about $6 million, which includes things like completely overhauling the uh, superstructure of the facility or replacing uh, heating and cooling systems for the pool. It's essentially a large, extensive rehab of the pool, which no one is really asking for. And this flies in the face of the contractor who is currently contracted to run the pool saying, no, 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 hold on. This is not a systems failure of the pool. Yes, there is a heater broken in the pool, but it's just a part that'll cost twenty-five to $40,000 to replace. That doesn't sound like $6 million. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you get a cascade of these kinds of things, you know, at twenty-five to $50,000, you know, it adds up, I suppose, but not to $6 million, I would think. Over the past seven years, maintenance and repairs on the facility have cost around $1.15 million, according to the city of Edmonton. Obviously, past returns don't guarantee future results, but it does seem like a little bit of a jump that it would cost $6 million for the next five. Well, this is an active item at executive committee. We'll, it won't be done by the time we're done recording. So, Troy, we get to prognosticate. What do you think committee will recommend here? The pool is going to stay open. It's the same thing that happened every other time that this pool has come up. Someone is going to have the sense to ask, hey, Let's spend $40,000 instead of spending $6 million. And administration will say, oh, okay. And the pool will stay open for another couple of years. <laughs> I think that's probably, that's probably what will happen. You're right. Why, hello there, dear listener. Troy from the Edit Bay here. With the benefit of time and distance and the omniscience that you gain from looking back on something that has already happened, we've discovered that, in fact, Rolly Miles is closed. The Committee of Council voted 4-1 in favor of receiving the report for information. This report would close the pool within 30 days after giving the required notice to the contractor. The only councillor voting against closing the pool on the committee was Jennifer Rice. So I don't know quite what to make of that. But in times like these, I always think back to this meaningful West Wing quote. And I concede I was wrong about the thing. Good. However. No, no, however, just be wrong. Just stand there and you're wrong. This and be wrong and get used to it. Of course, Scona Pool isn't the only community amenity asking for some money from the city. The Edmonton Ski Club, that's the hill in Gallagher Park, you know, the one that you see when you're tobogganing down the hill and really wishing you could use their T-bars to pull your toboggan up. They asked the city for $800,000 of funding to help demolish the lodge, which has become Condemned. Yeah, this Edmonton Ski Club Lodge was previously partially closed and then earlier this year fully closed due to structural issues. And the ski club basically wants $800,000 over three years to demolish the existing building and install temporary structures, which would allow them, as well as the folk music festival, to continue operating in Gallagher Park. They would use this to, to rent these temporary modular structures while it continues its efforts to build a new permanent facility. That new permanent facility, they think, might cost around $15 million, and they've already received 6.6 .6 of that from the Federal Green Inclusive Building Fund. And it's important to remember with this item, because... Many people will say, hey, I don't ski downtown. Why am I paying for this? 
The Edmonton Sea Club didn't build this lodge. The lodge was a city of Edmonton facility that already had structural issues, had issues with mold, was borderline uninhabitable when it was gifted to the uh, Edmonton Ski Club to use. And it has just now become so completely unusable that the city has prohibited access to it. And this fund is just to demolish it. So really, the Edmonton Ski Club isn't so much asking for city money to help with their operations. That'll come later. Right now, it's just saying, hey, city of Edmonton, can you clean up your stuff on our land pretty please. <laughs> An urban planning committee did recommend essentially to approve this funding of $800,000 and to also look at that future funding. So Councillor Ashley Salvador put the motion forward here to ask the city to consider including $3.5 to $4 million in capital investment toward the new lodge. So that'll be decided upon at a future date. But for now, it seems likely that council either next week or or sometime after that will take this recommendation forward to approve this funding to allow them to run some temporary buildings and get rid of the condemned structure. If I was a guessing man, I think the 3.5 to 4 million dollars that may be a contentious item at budget time, but I think the 800k to help clean up condemned buildings on city property, I think that one's going to pass without a hitch. Yeah. Another item this week that I would have said would have been a much more contentious, hotly debated item that managed to pass committee was Michael Jans's noisy vehicle motion. Uh, you'll recall this has been a crusade of the Papasteo councillor to increase fines and ticketing and enforcement for the bane of your existence, for sure, Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Noisy vehicles downtown and around White. Yeah, you might be able to hear some in the background as we're recording this. Not only did council or did the uh, committee pass this, they passed it unanimously, actually. Um, this motion that Jan's brought forward to outline a plan for noise enforcement, including maybe looking at the fine amounts and you know how they might fund that and then deploy this. And that'll come back sometime in the middle of, of next year. And Michael Jans had been in the news talking about this and had previously suggested that maybe the fines should be increased. Currently, they are from somewhere between $162 to $250 for excessive noise. And he was suggesting, you know, maybe $5,000 for a first offense and $10,000 for a second offense. So a very significant increase. And he was also talking about potentially reducing the decibel limit. So decibels, how they measure the sound, obviously, from 85, which is what the limit is currently down to 74. This didn't make it into the episode last week, but after we were done recording, you and I were talking about this, Troy, and I said to you that I don't think the problem is the decibels. The problem is the 10, 15 second window where a car or a truck or whatever the vehicle is goes an incredibly loud, you know, racy sound, makes a really loud, incredible uh, racy sound, and it echoes off all the buildings downtown or, you know, in, in some of the other areas that they do it. And it's not that constant noise. It's not that the bus is loud as it's driving by your building. It's these, like, spiky noises that are the real bane of residence. For sure, yeah. And with some of the extremely warm weather, I've been getting out and enjoying the river and paddleboarding down the river, uh, mm-hmm. launching from the Laurier dog park and heading down to Edmonton Queen. And our river is a great asset. It's so calming out when you're in the middle of this wide river, nature on all sides, except when you hear that car screaming up and down Groat Road with yep. that exact 15 seconds revving. It echoes all throughout the river valley, completely upsets the peaceful nature for no real purpose at all. And I 100% same deal as you with the decibels. There's been so many arguments about, well, you know, 74 is a really low number. We haven't been enforcing at 85. If we wanted to leave it at 85, I'm 
fine with that. We just need to start tackling this problem because we are not tackling this problem at all. I saw a comment uh, earlier today on a news article discussing this saying, this problem will solve itself in 10 years because everyone will have switched to electric vehicles, which are quiet. And I'm going to cut in uh, some audio of the (laughs) new Dodge Charger electric car. While other EVs are focused on keeping quiet, we amplified ours. Thanks to the patented Fratsonic chambered exhaust, the output is going to be as visceral as those that came before it. 126 decibels of output. (laughs) EVs are not a solution. This is a selling feature for these cars, right? To make them as loud as possible. Yeah, no, that's definitely not the solution. And, you know, the group of folks that have been out in the news talking about this, opposing this, they've launched a petition, actually, these motor vehicle enthusiasts. I think they're also missing the point here, too, that, you know, the intent, I don't think, is to penalize people who have bought cars that are noisy or that have, you know, modified their cars for enjoyment. It's to penalize the people that are abusing that and revving the engines and driving really loudly in the middle of the night, waking up an entire neighborhood for no good reason. That's the kind of stuff that we need to stop. And as you say, that really, to me, comes down to enforcement. Interestingly, this week in Red Deer, they also uh, were talking about noise. Back in May, their city council had approved a change to their bylaws to set noise levels at actually quite a bit more than ours, uh, 92 decibels. Uh, So, you know, they say as loud as a subway train passing by and they are now starting to enforce this. And one of the ways they've been doing that is with these automated enforcement systems, which I think we had tried in the past year in Edmonton, Troy. We had. And this has been the bane of our enforcement where we've tried some things and then just given up. We trialed some of the automated noise enforcement. You know, City of Edmonton employees said things like, ah, we were getting some false positives. We weren't getting the outcomes that we liked. And rather than tweak it, we threw it away. We haven't been using that enforcement tool at all. And of course, cities like Paris have these noise enforcement tools everywhere. It definitely is a proven technology that can work. It is so baffling to me that we just don't enforce. And of course, uh, this week, Mayor Sohi had said he's going to be asking the province on behalf of council to let the municipality use some more automated enforcement tools like these uh, noise monitors, and also to amend the Traffic Safety Act to allow peace officers to seize vehicles driving more than 50 kilometers an hour. Sure, good changes. But with this provincial government, I don't expect we're going to see a huge jump from let's ban photo radar, but that audio radar, get me some of that. (laughs) And to be clear, the folks down in Red Deer, the officers there who are policing this now are using these Quest sound detectors, they're called. They look kind of and work kind of like radar speed guns. So officers operate them. They're not, you know, completely automated, set up on a pole and then left to, to work on their own. Trained officers sign them out, take them on patrols. So that sounds interesting to me. I think that would be a good way to ramp up some enforcement. Although if we did that, we wouldn't catch the police officers who also drive really loudly and are the only ones who blare their sirens through the residential part of downtown. But I digress. I want to say before we move on that while we are dissing, I would say, on some of the enforcement practices, there has been an increase in enforcement related to noisy vehicles. Uh, Peace officers in 2021 issued 708 tickets compared to 138 in 2020. That's a marked increase. That's good. 
big increase. Exactly. But it's just like when the city of Edmonton says that they've increased the number of bike lanes 400%. If you have nothing to start, an increase isn't quite that substantial. Yeah. But the war on cars doesn't stop at the war on car noise. No, in fact, council this week was debating street parking and specifically the new parking management plan that could see residents paying for the street parking in front of their house more often. So this is all about curbside space. And this long range plan is intended to, you know, make the experience of using transit and cycling and all of these things better to better integrate curbside parking and curbside space with the goals of the city plan. And this strategy has seven actions over five to seven years that would help bring this to life. And the city's prioritizing three of those with this approval from committee. The first is just a framework to establish priorities. You always got to start with a framework. They're going to update on-street and off-street parking pricing, and they'll launch an enhanced program to manage curb congestion in local areas, whatever that means. I think the interesting part about this, Troy, is it seems a bit more of a formalization to me that you don't own the property in front of your house. Certainly, and that formalization is appreciated, given that, you know, less than a year ago, we had the conflict around the Wolf Willow Stairs, where residents within 500 meters of a particular area were confirmed that, you know, only they can use this River Valley amenity space. No one else can park in that area. Uh, This, of course, is walking that change back a little bit, but is definitely welcome to see. I know I have definitely gotten notes on my car about don't park there. That's my spot in front of the house. Mm. And it's it's good to see that, no, no cranky neighbor, you don't own that spot. <laughs> the plan talks about using uh, technology to manage and find parking. So it's no surprise that Zipstall, which is a local startup, was in, was supportive of this and, and thinks that there's an opportunity to use data to you know really understand where peak utilization rates are and that kind of thing. They also talked about using parking fees to fund things like benches and making sure that there's accessible parking spaces, maybe even secure bike parking and storage uh, in these curbside spaces. Um, But the paid permit parking could be an expansion of the Wolf Willow problem, no? This all depends on implementation. Is this going to be focused on downtown? For example, in downtown, you still get 30 minutes free wherever you park. Do we want to decrease that? Uh, Is this targeting Garneau or the areas around the LRT? Or is this going to be targeting mature neighborhood overlay areas like my home in Hazeldean, where there is an abundance of street parking? And I can guarantee you my community Facebook page would be livid if they were charged to park in front of their house when there's no public demand. Of course, that flips the question of, well, if we have all this space, and there's provably no demand and no one is assigning value to it, well, what if we put housing there? How much would that be worth? These sorts of questions of we have all this public parking available in the city, what can we do with it? I think this framework just gives us a better way to talk about that and assign value to our space rather than what we currently do, say parking is assumed to be everywhere and is a valueless thing that we can't charge for. And the city did say that they will take this forward on a neighborhood-by-neighborhood basis to try and account for those uh, differences, as you say, uh, between different areas. And there should be lots of public engagement on this as we go forward. One of the things that I explicitly wanted to mention, though, is highlighting what you mentioned that, you know, the parking funding, because 
if you start charging for something that you weren't charging for, you're going to generate revenue, mm-hmm. could very well be net zero and reinvested in the communities that the parking is affecting. And I think of somewhere like in the old Strathcona, Garno, White area, where currently there's a lot of parking that is broadly available and free. If this was charged for, could we do things like installing additional bike parking? Could we do things like in these neighborhoods, the city clears the sidewalks. It's no longer up to residents. And there's a higher service level of snow clearing funded by the parking fees. That would make walking to the parkade three blocks away much more viable an option. That would make walking to your destination much more viable an option. A lot of the criticisms around this parking change are like, if you're not making transit better, you can't discourage parking. And that internet commenter does have a point. Mm -hmm. But transit isn't the only knob that we can tweak. Transit isn't the only thing we can improve. If someone doesn't have to take a car those seven blocks in winter because there's a higher level of snow clearing, well, that's a win and that's a car removed from the road and that's achievable with parking fees. So that's one option. I would be extremely excited if those are the kinds of solutions we're seeing from this. Much more than what you had mentioned earlier. If it's just now you have to pay more money to park at Wolf Willow, further entrenching the class divide accessing the River Valley. Yeah, the city plan has a goal, right, of limiting all trips in Edmonton by private vehicles to 50%. So anything that we can do to help nudge things in that direction is a good thing. And as you say, there are both carrots and sticks. Cars aren't the only thing parked in our city. Weeds are also parked in many of our public spaces. And some residents are upset with a pesticide ban this week. I think council has done a bit of a 180 on this as well. It was in April that they asked city staff to basically explore this potential pesticide ban. And this week now they've decided that they will keep using chemicals as part of their public space maintenance. And this conversation really ended up not being so much about pesticides as about the state of public spaces in the city right now. Councillor Karen Tang even said that her staff have been berated online and over the phone with people who are so upset about the state of the weeds in Edmonton. I don't get that. I just who cares about a few weeds? The one interesting thing about the pesticides themselves that came up at committee was from Councillor Tim Carmel. And his argument, essentially, is that if there's chemicals or things that we shouldn't be using because they're bad for public health, then it's up to the other levels of government to make that determination. And we're not going to do anything about it, which I thought was probably consistent with the, you know, sort of arguments that Councilor Carmel has made in the past, but doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me as a city councillor who has to hear from the public that this is a big problem and then hear from administration that what we're doing maybe isn't working or could be done differently or better, and then basically just says, oh, it's not my problem. It seems in character for me to agree with you on that point, but I actually, as you were paraphrasing Tim Carmel to me right there, the man's got a little bit of a point. We talk a lot about jurisdictional overreach and how the city is forced to take up homelessness as an issue, even though it's quite clearly a provincial responsibility, because, you know, we don't want these people to die. Uh, That that's a pretty obvious thing that we have to do. Pesticides are a little bit less clear, though, because no one really inhales a pesticide and keels over the next day. They're they're donezos. It's a long-term health effect. It's a big public health initiative. There's a lot of disagreeing science on what the causes are. And truly, city council is not the government with the data or the research 
do make those decisions. Now, certainly we could say the same things about masks, but COVID was killing people by the dozens every week. I don't know that it actually is the city's place to step in about pesticides. It's certainly if the federal government or the provincial government said these are harmful, stop using them. The city absolutely should. But maybe there's a bit of pragmatism that makes sense here. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I just find the when it's convenient for us, we'll step in and when it's not, we won't argument a little bit difficult to swallow, right? Certainly, there are plenty of instances where council must make decisions about something that they are not experts on and that they are not the appropriate jurisdiction to be thinking about. And they do that because that's their job. So I think that should be a little bit more consistent in the approach that they take rather than what seems to happen, which is that you know certain issues they want to get into the weeds on and make a decision about even though they're not the right people potentially, and others they don't. They want to get into the weeds on it, huh? <laughs> yes, I grant you that this is not a uh, immediate health uh, impact. This is a longer term, you know, health concern potentially that people have. But council did ask for this report, did come back, um, and, uh, and and it's not going to go ahead. This pesticide ban, at least not for now. The city did say that they heard council and they've heard from the public that they need to do a better job. The deputy city manager for city operations, Gord Seabrook, you know, said that the, his staff will basically spend the rest of the summer figuring out where the weeds are the worst and they'll come up with a new budget for how to improve service, which will, like everything else, be debated by council in the fall. So you're not going to see any changes to the quality of, of weed management this year, although Seabrook did say they should, you know, citizens should notice a change next year. Of course, improvements in Edmonton are also made by passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. And you know those words. You know I'm about to talk to you about the Well-Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden. And the Edmonton Community Foundation, of course, helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. Episode 128 features Ahmed Ali, also known as Nomadic. He ran in Tastawinawak last fall, of course, but he's also known as a musician and community organizer, former poet laureate, and is one of Edmonton's most celebrated artists. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And Mac, I think that's all for this week. Are you going to make it next week? Are you getting <laughs> enough sleep? I don't know what day it is, Troy. I don't know what time of day it is anymore, but I'll be there. I can't stay away from the podcast. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.